0: Bring a spectacular piece of Napa Valley right to your doorstep today with Vermeil Wines. Former legendary Chiefs and NFL coach Dick Vermeil started Vermeil Wines back in 1999, but his undying devotion to bringing a taste of Napa Valley to the masses actually goes back generations.
1: Well, you know, it started as a hobby of making 150 to 200 cases of, of Cabernet, Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet, my dad's name and my great-grandfather's name.
2: Vermeil Wines are grown in Coach Vermeil's hometown of Calistoga, California, at the top of Napa Valley where the vineyards are over 100 years old. Browse all the
0: signature wine options or become an official member today at VermealWines.com.
2: Choose from 3, 6, or 12 bottles and enjoy a 15% savings with shipments each February, May, and September. You'll also get access to exclusive offerings and events such as virtual wine tastings with Coach Vermeil himself, as well as member-only wines. Try the
0: Signature Club, where you get one case per year, a 20% savings, four bottles of each Cabernet. These are the highest-rated wines at $1 shipping all year.
2: To join, visit vermeilwines.com now or call 707-254-9881.
0: Use promo code ELITE for $1 shipping on three-plus bottles of wine. This will also apply to your first wine club order if you mention ELITE at sign-up.
1: This is your Olympic hero and former WWE Champion, Kurt Angle, and I just wanted to give a shout out to my guys, Clint and Noah. When it comes to covering sports, there is no one better, and believe me, that's true. It's damn true. Gentlemen, you are the top 1%, the elite, best of the best.
3: But to be the man, you gotta beat the man, and I'm saying, woo!
1: I'm the man.
3: The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. You know when they talk about? They talk about the elite. The elite. You ever see the elite? You're the
1: elite. You are the elite.
0: You are now listening to the Elite Sports Podcast, brought to you by Vermeer Wines and powered by GASN Sports, the pinnacle of hard-hitting sports talk, featuring weekly expert analysis and top-notch interviews. And now, please welcome your hosts, Noah Groniger and Clint Schweitzer.
2: And just like the New World Order took over the wrestling business 24 years ago at Bash at the Beach 96, The Elite Sports Podcast is taking over the sports world, Noah, because the interviews are coming fast and furious. They are not stopping anytime soon. Football, life in general, so much uncertainty, not here on this podcast. We keep it rolling now, just because your favorite member of the NWO, which was founded by Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Hulk Hogan, just because your favorite member is Vincent doesn't mean we can't still partner up and do this podcast, man, because we've been doing it now for eight years, and we're going to continue to do it. The mega powers will continue to explode, my friend.
0: Yeah, Vince sanity I mean, I don't know how you could choose Hogan Nash or Hall with the NWO when you've got Vincent there. He's always there ringside to help out. So that has got to be Vincent taking over, just as we are here on the Elite Sports Podcast. And we've got two very special guests for you today. One is former Texas A&M Mississippi State head coach Jackie Sherrill and former Texas A&M running back and Kansas City Chiefs returner, the human joystick, the X Factor, Dante Hall himself is going to be on this very show, this very podcast today, my friend.
2: Yeah, it's happening, believe it or not. I mean, we've continued to roll out these top-notch interviews and we want to thank you guys for continuing to engage with it and for staying loyal listeners of the podcast, guys. It means so much to us for you to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. Our website, guys, as always, is gasnsports.com. It is the Great American Sports Network. It is the umbrella to which everything we do sort of falls under so you can get all of our interviews. You can get a video of uh, these interviews from today. If you we did these on Zoom, you want to see the videos, you can go to our website, gasinsports.com, and uh, check out the the video versions of these, which are always fun because you get to see us kind of in our natural habitat here in our palatial elite sports podcast studios and interacting with our great guests, man. So yes, you called it Jackie Sherrill. Really one of the great head coaches. The fact that he coached Dan Marino at Pittsburgh University, recruited and coached Dan Marino, then goes on to win three straight Southwest Conference Championships at Texas A&M before going to Mississippi State and the SEC, resurrecting that program. Jackie Sherrill, guys, has, he's a character for one. I mean, you talk about uh, him battling the NCAA. We're going to get some great stuff. If you All right, someone that hates the NCAA and kind of what they stand for, buckle up for this interview because he's going to bring it. I mean, he's been kind of, really zeroed in on his entire coaching career by the NCAA everywhere he went, there would always be kind of some incident. He was kind of forced out of A&M as a result of NCAA investigations. This is going to be fun. Jackie Sherrill is a hoot. And I remember him coaching Mississippi state against AM and m and that, 2000 independence bowl, which was in the snow and that bowl game always stands out. Jackie Sherrill, tremendous coach. And we were such a pleasure to have him on. And then of course Dante Hall, man, go back. Let's go back in a time machine back to the early two thousands Dante Hall, and what he was able to do here, and the way he was able to develop into one of the great kick and punt returners in NFL history. He's third all-time uh, in, in kick returns. Go back to that time period, man. I know we just won a Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes, but going back to that 03 season, Dick Vermeil, we've had him on the show. You think about that great offense, Trent Green, Tony Gonzalez, the offensive line, Priest Holmes, you know, Johnny Morton, Eddie Kennison, the names all speak for themselves. What a time that was. That team in 03 really had a chance. The defense let us down. We all know the, how the story ends. But, man, those years with Dante Hall were a lot of fun.
0: They absolutely were. Just as a kid growing up in the early 90s, uh, I never really thought about special teams. Uh, We didn't have a great kick return or returning things until we got to Merrick Vanover. And uh, then I realized just how big uh, a part of the game that could be. And then he left, and in comes Dante Hall a few years later. And, oh, my gosh, just what this guy was able to do in 2003 – The four consecutive games with returns, Uh, it started off with the Steelers and then the Texans and then the Ravens. The uh, penalty, he returns one for a touchdown. There's a penalty. It's called back. They kick it to him again. He just returns it for a touchdown again. And then that Broncos game, I was there seeing him reverse field back to the goal line, wrap around and score a touchdown. I've never heard Arrowhead louder personally myself. I was looking over my head for some sort of attack helicopter or attack chopper and realizing it was fans beating on the back of the seats. It was insane.
2: It really was. I was there at the Colts playoff game where he uh, returned a kick. At the time, the team needed it the most. We were down by two scores. Dante Hell returns the kickoff to make it 38-31. Unfortunately, the Chiefs wind up kicking off instead of onside kicking, giving the Colts the ball back with a short time on the clock. They get a first down. The game's over. We're going to talk to Dante about all that and so much more. I'm so excited, guys. This is one of the most fun interviews we've ever done. Dante is so engaging, and he loves to go back and share these memories and just – he's a back and forth like this is an interactive interview if you've ever heard one i'm so excited for it so in addition to our show i listen to a ton of podcasts and i'm at the gym almost every day so having a tremendous pair of earbuds is extremely important to me so whether you're working from home or working on your fitness you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to not what your roommates neighbors significant other or children are listening to everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds but before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon you already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands that you know their newest model the everyday E25 earbuds are their best ones yet, with 6 hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. I'll tell you, the long battery life and perfect fit has made this a game changer for me in the gym. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. You've heard me talk about how the company was founded by Ray J, and now celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy, and J.R. Smith are obsessed with Raycons. Pick up a pair and see what all the hype is about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon, so get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash that's by Raycon.com slash musicmania for 15% off Raycon Wireless Earbuds. That's by Raycon.com slash Musicmania. Dante, what's up, man? How
3: are you, my friend? What's going on? Can't call it. Just, just got off a of, uh, daddy duty, so kind <laughs> of trying to regroup right now.
2: Well, hey, absolutely. I bet there's been a lot of that the last few months. And so many uh, you know athletes we've talked to have become homeschool teachers uh, over this time. So have you Have you learned anything new? Have you delved into any, uh, you know, algebra or anything?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I've learned that uh, full-time parenting is not for the man. I know it sounds (laughs) sexist, but you need an unlimited amount of patience. Males don't have that. You need an unbelievable amount of just things that females have that we don't possess. That's what I've learned.
2: Well, uh, it stands to reason that Noah and I are both single without kids. So you're, you're speaking to the <laughs> choir here, man. Um, well, I tell you, it's great to have you on, man. We appreciate it so much. What, and things have been so crazy. What, what's, what ha- what's the last few months been like for you? What's been up and uh, kind of how's, how's everything been going in the family and everything?
3: I mean, it's just pretty much, that's it, man. Other than, um, I would say, 75% of my time has just been with the family. There's not much you can do. Even when we, you know, try to go get about to eat, go get it out of the house or do anything, because there's no school, it's pretty much with the family, and uh, the other twenty five percent, I've been traveling a little bit and playing a lot of golf. So for me, it's been family and golf. That's pretty much it.
2: Well, hey, can't beat that. Love the hat, by the way, uh, the the PM fifteen hat. What was what was it like for you? You know, as a as a longtime chief, someone that was drafted by the Chiefs in two thousand and where played seven years here. To see that this franchise make it over the hump this year with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and what this franchise was able to do, what what was that like for you personally? It
3: was just it was just an amazing ride, man. Because you know I I got I left some blood uh, blood, sweat and tears on that field, um, you know, trying to get that city, get that organization back to where I feel it uh, it belonged, and that was at the top of the pedestal because the fan base is awesome, um, the organization and where they treat treat their uh, former players. We have an unbelievable ambassador program, the fans throughout the city. Um, I can go on and on and on, but for me, I always felt like that city, that organization felt, I felt like they are deserved the championship just as much as anyone else. So to be able to go along with that amazing ride, to see the Lamar Hunt Trump uh, trophy come back home, to see the big boy come home, the Lombardi trophy. I mean, it was just, I, I can't put it in words. I really can't because it, it's an undescribable. Feeling. And I wasn't even playing, so I can only imagine what a Patrick Mahomes, a Tyreek Hill, Kelsey—what does that feel like? I don't know if I want to feel that feeling. That that might be too good. I won't be able to handle it.
2: <laughs> well, we we saw that feeling come to fruition at the um, at the parade afterwards. So there was exactly. a lot of good feelings. <laughs> Exactly. Um yeah, 2020 started off so well. Uh it's amazing. I still wouldn't trade it. I, I would take that you couldn't take that Lombardi trophy away from me, Dante. No, there's nothing you could do. No, to, we gotta to take have that COVID
3: to have the trophy. did have it COVID. <laughs>
2: exactly. Get comfortable,
3: I, Get comfortable COVID, because uh,
2: Trust me, I've had way too many strange conversations like this over the last few months. <laughs> but um Dante, I want to take this kind of back to the beginning because uh, you know, we uh Noah and I have done this SEC football documentary where we've been to all 14 SEC stadiums and the town. I want to take it back to your time at a because, you know, you grew up – you're from Houston, and uh, College Station's, what, 90 minutes away? Was it a yep. no-brainer for you to,
3: to that you're going to play for R.C. Slocum? Actually, it was not. That is not the way it unfolded. What happened was my junior year – I had a kick-ass season, my junior year in high school. Bobby Bowden from Florida State was visiting. I had uh, letters from Michigan. And being a running back during that time, and um, wore it, uh Done. Work done was at Florida State. So, you know, we kind of built the same. So that's what the allure was to Florida State. Michigan just, it, they had the same colors that we had at Nimitz, the blue and uh, yellow, plus the big house, a hundred and some thousand. They were always on TV. So those two schools were the schools that I really wanted to go to. They were recruiting me, I wanted to go there. But then I got hurt um, my senior year, and obviously the durability question started to unfold. So I ended up taking a um, trip to UNC, and Coach, uh, uh, I should notice this. What was the coach at uh, USC in, in 99? Matt, Mac Brown. Mac oh, Brown. yeah, North Carolina.
2: Mac Brown. Carolina. And he's and there had, now. He's back yeah. there now, yeah.
3: Yeah, and they had Leon Johnson. Remember that running back, Leon Johnson? Yep. So oh, yeah. Anyway, so I took a visit to North Carolina. That's where I really wanted to go because um, I really loved him. And I was, I won't lie, I was influenced by Michael Jordan. That's my favorite athlete all time. So I was influenced by that a little bit, but I had an unbelievable visit. Um, I went to a couple other places. Long story short, after visiting these places with my mom, that's when a m came on the uh, radar. Because at that point, she was like, no, I'm not feeling you going so far away to play. I won't be able to, you know, be able to afford or have the time to come see you play. And then my high school coach, who had played under R.C. Slocum, um, was like, look, you know, I can probably, you know, get you a scholarship um, or get you a look over at Texas A&M. That's how A&M came on the map. They were literally the last team on the radar. They were recruiting and everything, but I never saw myself being an Aggie, but it all worked out.
0: Well, talk to us a little bit about that, College Station. Uh, almost 103,000 fans now inside Kyle Field. You've got the town, the fans, the Aggie yell. practice the night before the game. What makes A&M now a special destination in the SEC?
3: I, you just said it. It's the SEC, number one. But even before it was the SEC, what uh, the lure and what they sold me on was they were going into the Big 12 from the SWAC. So I think it's the same thing. Like, you know, you're going from the Big 12 uh, – you're going from the SWAC to the Big Twelve. You're going to be on TV eight out of twelve games. You're playing the best competition. You got an unreal fan base, and what what they say? What do you call an Aggie? Boss, because there are Aggies everywhere. They're probably you know in some high position. So those things are the same things I think now. Those things hold true. You know you got the SEC. You playing in the best conference in and all of uh, college uh, football. Um, the fan base nowadays sitting a hundred and some thousand. You're on TV all the time. The facilities are better than the pro facilities. Like, I can go on and on and on. So, I think the same things hold true when I was being recruited to now.
2: Yeah, think about this. Kyle Field, I think back in 2014, did a 300 million dollar renovation. Uh, a quarter of a billion dollar renovation they do on Kyle Field, and just the the facilities and the arms race. So
3: you're the house that Johnny Manziel built. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, right no, no, no. there. That's <laughs> what so we call it because when he was doing his thing on a Heisman, you, you know about the guy that donated a hundred million, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, he that, caught that wave. He caught that feeling. Was like, yeah, hundred million. Here you go. So it's the house that Johnny built.
2: So you like A and M. Being in the SEC, being, you know, getting to play LSU, Alabama every
3: year, being in the SEC West against
2: that great – you like them in that conference?
3: Absolutely. I mean, you want to play the best. That's just the way I was built, the way I was wired, and I think every athlete should feel that way. Or even if you're just a novice fan, like, you should want your team playing and going up against the best on a weekly basis because when you have success, you can be like, you know, we had to go through the best of the best. So yeah, I'm all for you know being in the best conference, especially playing Alabama. They're the cream of the crop right now. Well, how close
0: uh, are you with the program today, and how often do you get back and and just some of the other SEC sites and towns and stadiums uh, that you've been able to experience?
3: I still have connections there. Uh, I'm, I'm closer with the Chiefs organization. Like I'm, I'm really involved with them and with their ambassador program. But uh, I get back to NM twice a year. Twice a year for a game. I usually go to the big game, go see Alabama if they're playing there or whatever big home game it is. But for the most part, yeah, I'm 90%, 95% KC. Get back to end every now and then.
2: Well, let's talk about 1998, which was a year you guys wound up winning the Big 12 championship. Uh, that great backfield with you and, and Sir Parker, Jamar Toombs. I remember you, as a Missouri fan, a heartbreaking game. Missouri goes down there and plays you guys to the wire, but you, you pulled it out in the end in a rainy game at Kyle Field. Um, and you guys wind up upsetting Michael Bishop and Kansas state in the big 12 championship. What was that game like? Cause I remember sir Parker went off in that game too, but what was that like for you guys kind of as the underdogs going in, you win the big 12 championship, go on to the, the sugar bowl, I believe. What, what was that like for you? that was your junior year, man. You kind of yeah, built my up junior to that.
3: Year. Yeah, it was junior year. And, uh, up until that point, we hadn't really been in any huge meaningful games like that. Like we played in the cotton bowl my sophomore year. Um, Nebraska was kind of running the division. And if it wasn't Nebraska, it was uh, University of Texas. So for us, um, that was the first time we were in a game of that magnitude with so much riding on it. And um, K-State, if they would have beaten us, was going to the national championship. So we're looking at it like this is our national championship game. Like we beat them, we pretty much can say we were national champs because we beat a team that was right there. So unbelievable atmosphere, unbelievable game, the speed. The speed of that game was incredible. It took us a little while to get adjusted to the speed of the game and, and the tempo of the game. But uh, once we got our footing and once we kind of got over the fact that, oh, my God, it's K-State, it's, it's Michael Bishop, it, it's Sumio and all these big name guys, Warren, the big defensive end. Once we got over that and just play football, and then, you know, we started kicking a little tail then.
0: Well Dante, after your great career there at texas a m you're drafting the fifth round in two thousand to the Kansas City Chiefs. Talk about your transition coming into the league from running back to receiver and I know uh, you sat down with Tyreek Hill a couple years ago uh, talk about his transition that you 've seen from him as well in that
3: uh, same role. We had similar transitions as far as coming in as return man running back and then converting to you know four time receiver roles and um it was it was a it, it was very difficult but the coaches at the pro level are so good at what they do to be able to convert and help a guy transition from a position that's not natural, unless you know how great the pro professional uh, coaches are. But um, that transition to me, other than trying to go from running back to receiver, the competition, I, I feel like college was a lot harder as far as transitioning from high school to college as far as uh, college to the pros because high school it may, there may be two or three guys that are really, really good. Four or five if you're in a conference like I was. You get to college, that's pretty much, you know, everybody is pretty good, um, especially going playing in the Big 12 SEC. So the transition was not hard. The conversion from running back to receiver was even harder. And Tyreek, to speak on his transition, I mean, wow. He is a top five receiver at 5'9", five, 5'8". Converted running back, and I mean, he's a bona fide receiver. He's not a gadget guy. Like, he can run every route on the route tree. He can go up and contest for, for balls as if he was six two six three. 6'3". Um, and I just admire his work ethic and, and what he's been able to do in such a short span.
2: Well, uh, by two thousand two, things are really off and running for you. Uh, Dick Vermeil is the head coach in Kansas City. We just had your former coach on just a few weeks ago. It was great to catch up with him and uh, Carl Peterson as well. Of course, they're partners at Vermeil Wines right now. They were kind enough to send us out some bottles, and I'm still I'm trying to trying to nurse them though, Dante. <laughs> uh, but two thousand two was such an important year for you. You return uh, two punts and a kickoff for a touchdown that year. Just talk about kind of your development and how you kind of came into your own that year. 2002 is when you really became the X Factor. Al Saunders is offensive coordinator. And um, I believe Frank Gans, Jr. as a special teams coordinator at that point. Just talk about 2002 and how important that was for you and kind of getting yeah, off so, the ground.
3: So a lot of people never take this into consideration. Um, so throughout my junior high, high school, and collegiate career, I always was on the offensive side of the ball 80%, 90% of the snaps. So I'm I'm in the floor of the game. I get to the lead my rookie year, and all of a sudden, I'm a pinch hitter. I'm just returning kicks. One was because I just wasn't ready. Two, the offense didn't fit me. It was a, it was a smash mouth, in between the tackles type of offense. It just didn't fit my skill set. What happened in 2002 was Al Saunders, as you mentioned, started getting me involved a little bit more in the offense. I had went over to NFL Europe. I learned to – be a decent receiver, enough to where I can make the team as the fifth receiver. And once I started playing on offense, now when I go back to return kicks, I'm in a groove. I got a mm-hmm. flow of the game, the speed, tempo of the game, and I took a couple of hits. That's why my return game took off the way it did, because I started being implemented on the offense. So 2002 was important because of my role, my in- increased role on offense to help my return game.
0: We'll talk a little bit about 2003. I mean, that's not just a special year for you, but for the whole team. And, and you set a record with uh, four returns in four weeks uh, consecutive weeks. The Steelers, Texans should
3: have been five. It should, <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> the Ravens, I mean, you get it called back on a penalty, and you're like, that's fine, I'll just take it back again. And then the Broncos <laughs> one where you're retreating to the end zone. I personally, I've never heard Arrowhead louder. I mean, people are banging on the
3: seats. I look above me thinking there's a, a chopper above my you head. Wait, wait, wait. You were at the game? I was yes yeah. So were you at the playoff game that year versus the Colts? Yep. I was. That, I, that I was the player, loudest, but game yeah, that I've ever heard. That was the loudest for me. So O three Broncos was definitely a loud one. They took it up even a, another notch in the playoff game.
2: That and, and until we kicked off the next on the next play instead of uh, doing an onside kick, which we needed to do. That yeah,
3: it has like twenty twenty.
2: Yeah, we asked Coach Vermeil about that, and he said, "Well, it never really dawned on me." Yeah. to do that, and I'm like, well, it dawned on everyone in, <laughs> at Arrowhead Stadium that day that we needed to do that. I mean, and that, in seriousness, was it ever contentious between the offense and the defense? I mean, it, it is what it was. The defense wasn't up to snuff. Coach Vermeule said as much on our show. I mean, was it, was it hard?
3: To, you know, it, it's funny you ask that question because it wasn't verbally said that year, but I think it came to a head the following year because we had an unreal – fight amongst the receivers, DBs, offense, defense at practice that following year. Um, I don't know if that's what drove Coach Miller into retirement, but it was pretty bad. I don't think it ever got out. I don't know if it was ever like, you know, we didn't have social media at that time and you were able to control things a little bit more, but yeah, we were, hell yeah, we were frustrated. Like you, you can only naturally be frustrated. You putting up 30 points a game, you are scoring on special teams, special teams is doing their thing. But the defense is giving up 35 a game and can't stop anybody and giving up third and 15s and third and 12s. And we just, we, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Personally, and I think I can speak for most guys. Yeah, we, it was a little frustrating, you know, not having them just be middle of the pack on defense. Don't be dead last, be in the middle. Kind of like last year. That defense wasn't a great defense, but they were a middle of the pack. They could get stops when they needed. And the guys, I felt like on this year's defense, They cared. They had better leadership. They cared about their craft, what they were doing. I feel like the guys we had at the time, I'm not going to throw any names under the bus, but, yeah, looking at the defensive leadership and the defensive intensity and mindset of this championship team opposed to ours, I think that was a difference. And And this guy right here (laughs) might have been a big difference, too.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And in 2003, I mean, you guys, I don't know if you felt like you needed to play a perfect game on offense heading into that game, knowing what your defense was doing and going up against Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Dallas Clark, Edron James, the list goes on and on. Uh, But Priest Holmes has a key fumble in that game. And then uh, Tony Gonzalez with the offensive pass interference. And that's those are two mistakes you guys just couldn't afford on the offensive side of the ball, sadly.
3: Yeah, those they, in hindsight, they definitely came back to haunt you. But I think at any point, if we make them punt, just make them punt one time, then we can even that game up. Um, I mean, you just cannot be at home in a divisional playoff game and the team doesn't punt. Like, that cannot happen at Arrowhead. It just cannot – it cannot happen. It just can't.
2: Well, Coach Vermeel talked about how you were one of his favorite players to coach and just was so ecstatic with the way your career turned out. Uh, but uh, after you leave Kansas City in 2006, he thought maybe you kind of lost some of your love for the game when you went to St. Louis and that you you, know, you kind of dealt with some injuries and it was uh, you know, uh, 2007 and 2008 were kind of the end for you. What was your kind of mental state after leaving Kansas City? I know um, Herm Edwards had come in in 2006. Uh, Coach Ramil was gone by then, and kind of the team was in the process of transitioning. But what what was those last two years like for you and how difficult yeah, I was mean, it? Coach Ramil,
3: Coach Ramil hit it on the head. I lost my yeah. love for the game because of, first, the way I was traded. And I know it's a business now. You see it happen all the time. But uh, I never got a phone call from them. I just found out I was traded through Dick Ramil and ESPN. That's how I found out. So I'm pissed off right there because, you know, I done left everything on you know on the field. And to not be able to even get a call, so that left me sour. So I go to St. Louis, you know, chip on my shoulder, pissed off. You know, it's a business now, so I'm not going to give them everything I got when they, you know, turn around and treat you like that. So there was definitely some of that going on. And then to go from Arrowhead to freaking St. Louis Rams, like that's like punishment, dude. That's like being put in timeout or something. I mean, to lose the NFL <laughs> team, like you, you, they lost the NFL team. The St. Louis Rams how bad do you have to be to lose an NFL franchise? So that should tell you everything. And, um, yeah, th- those two things were probably 80 90% of the reason why I definitely lost my zest for the game of football. And then, you know, you throw in the injuries, the high ankle sprain. That doesn't help. And I just feel like, you know, I completed my contract, didn't owe anybody any money. Felt like it was a good time to head on into the sunset. In hindsight, I should have went to another team because I, I had some more left in the tank. But those two to three years with the injuries the way I was traded um, and playing for that organization and that coach, nothing against uh, – damn, I forget his name.
1: Uh,
3: what, he, he, my, ended up, he ended up being the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys. Um, who anyway, was Scott Linehan? Scott Linehan. Great, great man, horrible coach. Horrible <laughs> head coach. <laughs> yeah, that's been proven over time. So. Exactly. So, I mean, come on. So, you know, you go from Dick Vermeil. To that, just all of those things, definitely lost success. But in hindsight, I would have went and played for another team and ended it a little better than tonight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We wish, wish that for you as well. And, I mean, uh, you're loved here in Kansas City. And just to kind of go back on Mahomes, uh, have you ever personally seen anything quite like him? And just how fun would it be? And I don't know if you, you got some left in the tank now to be in this offense with Tyreek
3: Hill and the boys. Have I seen anything like him? Yes. Obviously, we've seen Brett Favre comes to mind. Uh, who else? Uh, uh, yeah, I think of Brett Favre, just a gunslinger. But I just think a little more um, sharper gunslinger. You know, he's very smart. With He takes care of the ball very well. So, and I, let me retreat. No, I have not seen anything like Mahomes. I have not, now that I think about it. But um, I also think the organization has done a great job of putting weapons around it. I think the team is built right. And they go get talent in the lower rounds, um, like like no other. You look at Tyreek Hill, late round guy. Uh, what was the running back? Oh my god, um, that that was suspended. Oh, Kareem, Kareem Hunt. Kareem Hunt. He was a late round guy. Um, Kelsey, I don't know what he was. Just, Second just, round just, for Kelsey. Just yep. the guys that they put, They're not putting a bunch of first round talent. They're going to get guys that you know, uh, that are deemed to be done. They're getting low round guys. But these guys are super, uber talented, and I think they've done a great job.
2: Well, Dante, as we look forward here, we're in the, here at the end of July with a lot of uncertainty coming up. NFL, we, uh, we think it's going to happen. Limited fans in the stands. What, I mean, what would it be like just as a player? You're used to Arrowhead Stadium, 78,000 people, and now you've got 10,000 or you've got nobody. You've got ads all over the seats. Like what, What's that like, going to be like for players, man? It'll be well, like you're don't. back in St. Louis. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he said it. He said exactly. it, not me.
1: Hey,
3: and it's gonna feel like a, a scrimmage too. But this hmm. is what I'm keeping my eye on the most. How many guys are able to finish the games? Because one thing that playing in a stadium like Arrowhead affords you is unbelievable adrenaline. So when you got those nicks, those bruises, that aches, that ache and that that pain, that adrenaline gets you through the game and gets you to the ice tub after the game, right? So now, with that with 10,000, 20,000 in the stand, well you still have that adrenaline force because that's a major part of getting through NFL games, getting through the collegiate games as well. You have that adrenaline, and you feel like Superman when you're out there. That pain that that you feel at practice, you don't feel on Sundays. That's why some guys are not able to practice on during the week, but get out on the get uh, get out there on Sundays and able to go. It's adrenaline. That is a real, real thing. So I'm watching that this year to see how these guys are playing with a significant reduced fan base.
2: Well, Dante, before we let you go, I just kind of want to look back at kind of an overview. I mean, your time in Kansas city, you're so beloved here to this day. You talk about how you are still connected to the franchise. You're tied third all time in uh, kick returns with uh, 12, six and six. Perfect. Even number there for punts and kicks. Looking back, how, how, how special uh, we we're, were these years here for you. I mean, play, the offense with Trent Green, your offensive line, Casey Wigman, Willie Rofe. I mean, just Tony Richardson blocking, Priest Holmes, uh, Johnny Morton, Eddie Kinnison, Tony Gonzalez. Will How
3: special? Will Shields.
2: Will Shields. How could it? Brian Waters. I'm, Brian Waters. <laughs> and
3: come on, Casey Wigman, <laughs> Name them all. On, <laughs> right, right. right.
2: <laughs> How I special mean, it was, was it? It was
3: super special um, for a multitude of reasons. I set out as a kid with a dream to make it to the NFL. I didn't dream big enough to be like, I'm gonna have two NFL nicknames. I'm gonna have a long, almost a decade career. I'll be beloved by a city forever. Like none of that ever crossed my mind. I just wanted to make it. So everything else has been icing, but more importantly than anything is the relationships. Man, I know it sounds cliche AF, but it's the <laughs> truth. It's just the truth. I still talk to Vermeule this day. You talk about wine? He just sent me a case of wine a few days ago. Um, I still talk to Willie Rove. We hang out, all these guys. So the football career was short-lived, but the relationship, that's forever, man. And we sit around, we have drinks, smoke, and, and talk about the good times, and we laugh. And that's what, really, that's what life is really, really about. I wish we could talk about the championship we won in 2003, but hey, i settle for it. You know some other conversations and
0: laughs. Absolutely, the relationships, and we love you here in Kansas City. And uh, what kick return sticks out the most to you? I got to ask that. Whether it's Baltimore, whether they you have to do it a second time, or or Denver retreating to the goal line and wrapping around and scoring then, and the crowd bursting. Just so are which one stands out? Kick
3: return out? or touchdowns? Which one you want to talk about? The touchdown. Return? Which
0: one returning it for a touchdown?
3: A return for a touchdown? Man, I, two stand out to me. There was one. That didn't even. Oh, you say for a touchdown? Well, there's one that didn't go for a touchdown. That was against the Raiders on Christmas Day. I remember that one. That, that got was a one field of my goal favorite. range that to win the game. That was field goal range when we should have. Yeah, lost. yeah. But if I had, if I had to just be pick one, it would be that Baltimore return, only because of the atmosphere of that game. Who it was against, Ray Lewis and all those guys over there, Ed Reed is over there. It was smash mouth. Felt like a gladiator arena. Um, that probably. Would be my first. Obviously, the Denver return is up there. It's up there. But I don't know. It's hard to pick one. It's like your babies, man, your kids. Well, you guys (laughs) don't have kids, so you wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I got a dog. It's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) the,
2: The funny part about that Ravens game is that was, believe it or not, folks, that was a defensive battle. Like you said, it was 10 to 10. When you returned that game, that was the game-winning touchdown. And if you it's was at that 10. game, that
3: atmosphere, like, Woo. it was intense. Smash mouth, like, it's Monday night. Like, it, it was intense. So yeah. to break that one to help the team win, oh, my God. Like, that, that, that's definitely at the top. And obviously Hunt. the Denver return is up there, too.
2: Dante, there's so many memories and so many wonderful moments from your career. I'm so thankful we were able to work this out, man. This means the world to us that, uh, to have you on this morning. Hope everything's going well. Stay safe and stay healthy, man. Let's just get a, let's get a football season going. Let's get right? someone back to normalcy, man.
3: Man, for real. We're going to have a football season. I'm confident. Um, and, yeah, great being on with you guys. And uh, anytime you need me, reach out. Thanks, I a Dante. I will.
0: Thank you. It was an absolute honor. Take care. Peace and love. Go, Chiefs.
2: Chiefs. Well, thanks, Dante Hall. That was a lot of fun. We want to thank uh, Raycon again for being a sponsor on this week's podcast yet again. Again, the website is buyraycon.com slash musicmania. Get 15% off today. The best wireless earbuds on the market. Dante Hall, man, that was tremendous. That really takes you back. And just to be able to connect with him and talk about his days at A&M, obviously his time in Kansas City, because when Dante Hall was here and uh, Dick Vermeil was building that offense, you know, we were in college. That was like kind of a resurgence. You had the nineties where we were growing up and becoming fans. And then those early two thousands were the resurgence of the chiefs franchise after a few years of lackadaisical kind of mediocrity uh, during the brief Gunther Cunningham era, but got back kind of on track at that time. Things didn't end the way that we or the team or Dick Ramil or Carl Peterson or Dante Hall wanted, but there was a lot of memorable occasions there, man. We talked about pretty much all of them right there. It was a true treat.
0: It really was. And just to hear him, he didn't really hold back on going after the defense. Uh, didn't mention any specific names. I will, William Barty. But uh, he, j- hearing about kind of breaking news here in that 2004, he didn't uh, know if it had ever been publicized, that the receivers and the DBs kind of went at it, and they were at odds, and maybe that's why Dick Vermeil left because the team was kind of uh, fracturing at that point. Uh, he said it didn't really come to a head in t- any time in 2003, but the following season in 2004, it really was coming to a head and a boiling point.
2: Well, we're going to go ahead and get to our second interview here, with which is with former Pitt, former Texas A&M, former Mississippi State head coach Jackie Sherrill. We're going to get to that right after this break. Noah, let's face it. If you go anywhere these days, you need a mask. That's right, Clint. If you go to the bank or the gym or
0: even the store, you're going to be required to wear one for the foreseeable future.
2: If you're going to be rocking a mask, why not do it in style while celebrating the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory in the process?
0: Absolutely. Visit our friends at Noble Apparel to check out all their selections of masks that come in all styles from Frozen to Spider-Man and of course our defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs.
2: Noble Apparel is KC born and bred and their merchandise is by Chiefs fans for Chiefs fans.
0: Visit nobleapparelkc.com or check them out on Facebook
2: today at Noble Apparel 816. Hey coach, Good. welcome to the show. How's everything been going? What, what what have you been up to here these last couple crazy months?
1: Well, uh, I kind of got lucky, meaning not lucky, but nothing's lucky in this time uh, during these times. But I had my right knee uh, total TKR, total uh, knee replacement of my right knee on March the 9th. So that was when the time came that everything went south. And so I was quarantined anyway.
2: Definitely kind of wanted to get into your career, which is so prodigious and you've done so many things, but I've got to take it all the way back um, to the, uh, to the early (laughs) sixties, you playing uh, for coach bear Bryant at Alabama. You had this teammate named Joe Namath, who we're actually trying to get a hold of actually right now, as we speak to talk to him as well. Take us back to that um, playing for bear. I mean, you're uh, you're, you're born in Oklahoma. You're kind of from the, you know, the, the, the Southwest there, um, and you go to Oklahoma. You go to Alabama. Win two national championships, no problem. And you play with guys like Ken Stabler and, and Joe Namath. What uh, just kind of take us through that and why you went to Alabama and and kind of what that experience was like.
1: Well, I grew up in Oklahoma, and that was when Oklahoma Oklahoma had their forty seven or forty eight game winning streak. So you grew up and watching OU football. Uh, so in the back of my mind, I was you know, when I got older, uh, was recruited by OU, had a chance, but, uh, the decision came down because the coach Bryant came down and visited with me and never asked me to come. He just talked about the university, talked about the players and it was very, very casual, comfortable conversation. And so that's, I made the decision to go. I took one of my teammates with me and, uh, Matter of fact, there were uh, 76 players, I believe, signed our freshman class. And out of that 76, seven of us were seniors together four years later. So, you know, the stories about playing for Coach Bryant back then uh, uh, were true.
2: I I mean – just such a legendary figure and an important figure in the in, in the history of football I mean you uh, Joe Namath was the quarterback there you guys uh during your career you won two national championships did you when you go there do you get the famous bear Bryant speech that i uh, that everybody has seen today where he talks about walking out of here as a national champion if you commit and and, and do what uh you know what what kind of his regimen is
1: no no he you know he in his recruiting he never brings up you know what you can do or what you're going to do he just talks about alabama just talked about the players you know i was very fortunate i played with name of sloan stabler and hunter matter of fact steve sloan was my roommate my freshman year and uh it was amazing of how many players that came through alabama but you know, a lot of us were not the five and uh, four and five star players. But by the time they left, uh, you know, the, the players that stayed ended up being outstanding players. But we had some great players like us, uh, Namath and Sloan Stabler and uh, Hunter were the four quarterbacks during my time. D- you know,
2: what? at what point because I know you returned to Alabama as a grad assistant and that's kind of where you start learning the coaching uh where you start really getting off on the coaching foot what what did bear bryant kind of instill in you and 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 what did you kind of take from him as far as this is and is is that why you chose down the path i mean just playing for a guy like that what why what, what kind of got you into coaching
1: well i was in graduate school and uh, then I, I went to Arkansas to finish my graduate degree in business and coach majors was on the staff. He got got the jo- head job at Iowa state and just, I just walked in his office one day and I said, coach, would, can you offer me a job or hire me? And he looked at me and he said, well, what can you coach? And I said, coach, if you're a coach, you can coach anything. And he kind of, you know, took him back a little bit, but he hired me. You know, I had the opportunity to play for Coach uh, Bryant and Coach one year as a GA. So you you got to be as a player to understand, you know, what it took. But also being in the staff meeting and listening to Coach Bryant organize practice, organize drills, you understood what it what it took uh, to put the players in position to win. And, you know, coaching for uh, Coach Brawls at Arkansas one year, Coach Brawls was a great businessman. And then Coach Majors, you know, was the best PR guy in our business at that time. And, And so I had the opportunity to learn from, or be exposed to three great, you know, head coaches. That all were won championships, and the opportunity to, for Coach Majors, he gave me and moved me up the ladder from, you know, the B team coach to linebacker to defensive coordinator to assistant head coach, in succession of in four years. So I was uh, very fortunate to be around Coach Majors for eight years, and. Then went off to Washington State uh, for one year to be a head coach, and then came back to Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah, and at Pittsburgh, um, you have unprecedented success there, and uh, you coach and recruit uh, a guy by the name of Dan Marino. Uh, during that time, you guys very you guys very nearly win the national championship in 1981. In fact, if you you know obviously a, a win over Penn State that year, and you guys would have probably finished first in uh, in in the polls. Just talk about well, we,
1: about uh, that and yeah, we finished first in the uh, New York times, but you know, if the head coach had been smarter, we would have won it uh, probably two out of the last three years. I was at Pittsburgh. We were 11 and one, 11 and one, 11 <laughs> and one, but you know, our first year in 1980 <clears throat> probably was the best recruiting year I've ever had, or even Pittsburgh ever had, because we had Hugh green, Ricky Jackson, uh, We had Mark May, uh, Jimbo Cope, Well, he was the next year, Russ Grimm. And so we ended up, of those 25 recruits, uh, well, back then, I think it was 30. Out of those, we had 18 that went to pro camp out of that class. We had three in the first round, seven, uh, 11 in the first seven rounds, and, 18 in, uh, ended up going to camp. Uh, but, you know, recruiting Danny, Danny in high school, he was a man playing with, with boys. I mean, he was so outstanding, a very big statue wise, 6'4. And, but one thing he could do was throw the football. Baseball was his really true love. And during the recruiting, i thought i was going to lose him to baseball matter of fact he's he was drafted by kansas city and a little side story of the the scout from kansas city was came in and with the contract and i'm there at the dining room table with his mother his dad uh, the representative and myself and danny and so he was going through the contract and when he said the amount of the contract well first of all he said he was they were going to move george Britt to first first base and danny would play third base so i'm listening to that and then he said the amount of the contract and i i stopped him and i said well, wait a minute you said danny you were going to move george Britt to first base danny would play third base but you're only offering X, I, there's not enough zeros on that contract if you're telling the truth.
2: Um, when, when it comes to, to Dan, have, have you ever seen a player that, um, that had that kind of a release with that kind of accuracy yep. before or since? Because I think a lot of people, you know, we're here in Kansas City, we got Patrick Mahomes here. A lot of people kind of look at him and, and what he's able to do. But, but Dan Marino at the, for the time – I don't think anyone's ever seen anything like it. And here in Kansas City, Jackie, we went ahead and drafted Todd Blackledge uh, instead of Dan Marino, and we're still living that down.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, Danny, if he had come out his junior year, uh, of course you couldn't back then. He would have been the first pick. But, you know, there was a lot of innuendos and other things that pushed him down. But I can tell you, I, I filmed Danny his freshman year at Pittsburgh. His throwing motion. And it was unreal the release, you know, how he positioned the ball, meaning. And I asked Danny, I said, Danny, who taught you how to throw the football? And he said, My dad. And I said, Well, what did he tell you? And he said, The ball goes up and out, which, you know, we, we have all these quarterback gurus that said, you know, your elbow's got to be at this angle, the, the ball's got to be, you know, at this height, which, is way too complicated. All the after you set the ball, the ball goes up and out. That's it. But then you look at all, all when you look at a quarterback like Mahomes or Johnny Manziel, and most quarterbacks that throw the ball from all different angles all, were also a great baseball player.
0: You coached Texas A&M in the 80s. What were your thoughts kind of when they moved to the SEC and what sets Texas A&M apart and makes them a unique and special place?
1: Well, you know, I was one of the beating the drums that, and people don't really understand this. The SEC and, and, and Mike Slive recruited A&M harder than A&M recruited the SEC. And people said, well, that's crazy. Well, it's not. Because the top five college football uh, fan bases, when you look at around the country, you know why the SEC, why the Big Ten, their television packages are so large, is because they have more fan base. But the top five cities are Birmingham, eighty-five uh, percent; Atlanta, forty-one; Tampa, St. Pete, I believe, at thirty-nine. And then Houston and Dallas. I don't know if it's Dallas, Houston, or Houston. So AM brought 40% of the television package to the SEC. Then you look at AM, it's the richest school in the SEC. It also is the largest enrollment in the SEC. It's a member of the AAU. And there's only four schools in the SEC that is a member of the AAU, and that's Missouri, uh, Texas uh, A&M, Florida, and Vanderbilt. So the SEC recruited, and Mike Slive recruited A&M a lot harder, and it brought to the SEC a lot of things that no one else did.
2: Well, you, of course, you know, ha- had a great run there, coached there for seven years, and you win three straight Southwest Conference championships. Of course, A&M's in the Southwest Conference back then. You had some battles. You guys routinely beat Texas, who's a major rival, uh, but but uh, fell short against Arkansas several times, which, of course, winds up in the SEC as well. But just take us back through, through your time uh, at A&M and just kind of what, what it meant to you to, to be there. Um, it, it's such a special place. Like we said the, the fans, there's something about the camaraderie every single time you walk in there, is there someone to say howdy? Just what, what was your experience like there as a whole?
1: Well, it was great. Uh, a and is one of the most unique institutions, even though, you know, it was founded as a military agricultural school, uh, you know, you have 2,500 or 2,800 kids in the military. Well, back until they went co ed in the 70s, uh, they had 5,000 students, and all 5,000 were in, in the Corps. So when you look at the history of it, of AM, it's a tremendous amount of history, but it and how much the history actually was where we are today you know they were one when world war ii broke out uh, the whole school was shipped off to war and they participated in a lot of battles and it was a m students that were in the in the military that helped win world war ii and like General Patton said, you know, give me a handful of, of Aggies and our uh, company of, uh, of cadets. You know, I may win the battle, but I'll win the war with AM, a handful of AM uh, graduates or cadets or service guys. And then you look at the Old Southwest Conference. You know, schools that have competed for years, but very unique because all but Arkansas were in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every day you had that connection. And people that worked every day either were from Houston or Texas or Texas A&M or Texas Tech or Rice or SMU or TCU. So the rivalry of, of the state was one that was very huge in uh, the, the old Southwest Conference. And years ago, when I first came to AM, i A&M, I'm in Houston, Texas, this is a true story. I'm in Houston, Texas, and I'm driving down the interstate. I, I 10 with alumnus or former student, and we're talking about bowl games. So I said, there's a lot of bowl games. You know, that Hawaii just opened up, and it's a great bowl game. He slams on the break in the middle of the interstate, and he says, Jackie, there's only one bowl game we want to go to, and you get us to the Cotton Bowl. We'll ship in the palm trees, the sand, and the water. You just get us to the Cotton Bowl. In
2: 1991, move on to Mississippi State, a program that uh, was, you know, there's no other way to, to say it. It was in shambles. You were able to absolutely resurrect that program. Mississippi State gets on the map. You guys win an um, a, a SEC West championship for the only time in school history. Just talk about kind of the challenges. You go from this – you said that we're one of the richest schools uh, in the Southwest Conference at the time at Texas A&M to Mississippi State, which is struggling. What what was that transition like from you going from College Station to Stark Vegas?
1: Well, yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of like going from uh, – you know, having all the tools you needed uh, to go into a place where you knew that you had to build to be able to get the tools, and that's just like the locker room that we had at the sta- at the stadium. And and Mike Leach talks about the visiting the locker room, how bad it was when he was at Kentucky coming in. But uh, that's part of there's there's two or three things you look at as coaches. You look at a coach that goes to a place like Mississippi State, and they're able to build it into a winner and compete for the championship. Or you look at a coach that goes to, i.e., Michigan or i.e., Alabama, Ohio State, or Florida, that had Notre Dame that has all the tools there. Uh, There's a certain amount of rewards for taking a team that. from that's considered below, and moving it up to win a championship, then taking over a team that wins it all the time, or expected, or has all the tools.
0: Well, talk to us about Stark Vegas. I mean, you got the cowbells, Davis Wade Stadium, the town, the fans, Hail State. What is it about Mississippi State that makes it a great destination in the SEC?
1: Well, it's a great school. Uh, when I say that, and it the environment. I've always said people talk about, well, I want to go to a away game somewhere. And when the SEC, certainly uh, Mississippi, Mississippi State, they ask, well, which, which game? I say, well, if you're going to go with, with your friends and buddies, you go to Mississippi because you, you want to go to the Grove, but you don't want to take your kids to the Grove. I said, if you're going to take your kids to a game, You go to Mississippi State because it's a kid environment and family environment atmosphere. But Mississippi State, you know, for the state of Mississippi. And, you know, if you look at the different areas, the state of Mississippi per capita has produced more NFL players than any other state per capita.
2: We'll talk a little bit about the uh, just playing in the SEC during your time there because the slogan is it just means more. The SEC East was really kind of in more in the power during a lot of those years. You guys faced Tennessee in that famous uh, 1988 SEC championship game, but there's so many great atmospheres and just kind of talk about what it was like, uh, you know, and, and maybe some of the differences between in the Southwest Conference, like you said, it's all kind of in Texas other than Arkansas, and then Arkansas actually follows you to the SEC there in, in your division. But I just kind of talk about some of, the, some of the great road environments, some of the places that you liked playing the most uh, when you were coaching at Mississippi State.
1: Well, uh, you know, you go to each, each place, and they all were different. Uh, you know, when you went, the hardest place was Little Rock. And people say, well, that's a small stadium. Yeah, it is small, but it is the loudest stadium. And they don't treat the visiting team very well at uh, Little Rock, as far as the fans. And, matter of fact, you, you need your helmet on, kind of like LSU, when you come out of the locker room going on to the field, either you're going to get beer or, or hit in the head with a beer bottle. But, uh, you know, the, the other places, Tennessee, you know, at during that period of time, they've changed now. But during that period of time, they had they had PB speakers lining the fields on both sides. But on the Tennessee side, the speakers were going to the stands. On the visitor side, the speakers were going to the field. And when I took our team in from Pittsburgh into to Knoxville, uh, I told the uh, told the security guys that traveled with us, I said, here's a pair of wire cutters. You cut those speaker wires before the kickoff. And they did. And then when I took the team in from Mississippi State to Knoxville, I'm out there in pregame up. The guy walks up and pulls my shirt, and I turn around, and he says, you're not going to cut my speaker wires today. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, uh, the – Florida is a hard place to play because of, you know, the, the students at one time, they've changed the rule now in the SCC. but the students during back, they were, they were at the 50-yard line all the way to the goal line so behind the visitor's bench. And that was very hard at Florida. They were very loud. And they changed that. Ruling and then put them in the end zone from the 20-yard line to the end zone, which helped, except if you're down in that end zone. South Carolina is unique. Uh, It it is hard to play at South Carolina going into the end zone. Uh, LSU, it's hard to play, you know, (laughs) anywhere on the field at LSU because it is extremely loud. If you play LSU, you don't want to play them at night you if you can keep from it every trip going into the stadium from the hotel when we played lsu and baton rouge you have to go through they always routed us across a train track and we it didn't matter what time of day or night the game was we were always stuck at the train track for 10 minutes so There's a lot of different uh, little things add up to different places that are hard to play. But any stadium, uh, even in Starkville, that is not the largest. But the cowbells make it pretty loud. Now, at Denny Stadium, uh, they play before the game because of the loud, the PV speakers in the speaker system. Uh, they play uh, Coach Bryant, and those decimals go pretty high. You know, I would not allow our players to come on the field until after all that went on because it is kind of intimidating.
2: Yeah, and you own a victory over Alabama. You guys beat Alabama for the first time, and I think 15 years. Uh, there at Mississippi State, you go to six bowl games. You go to uh, an SEC championship game, which hasn't been done. 20, it was
1: it was nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety six. So it, yeah, yeah, so incredible. It, yeah, and okay. that that game down came down to uh, missing an extra point.
2: Well, before we let you go, Coach, we got to ask about. I brought up Mike Leach and kind of the state of the program now. Do you think? His style will be successful in Starkville. How do you how do you think it's going to play out for uh, Coach Leach and Mississippi State? Uh,
1: yes, you know uh, you have to play defense, and Mike knows that. And and uh, but offensively, you know people don't realize uh, how smart Mike is. But what impressed me more than anything are watching their practice of how much and technique is taught offensively that's just like the receivers you know the, when I went to practice the receivers were staying out 30 to 40 minutes after practice just catching tennis balls from the jug machine now I want to tell you uh, running stepping into a route and turning around and catching a tennis ball is not like catching the football it is hard Uh, but he spent time he would spend a whole practice of doing for one hour of doing nothing but throwing takeoffs where the receiver and the quarterback had no and had to adjust against every coverage so you know and i saw that in person when texas tech beat texas when Crabtree made the adjustment on the last play, and caught caught you know a, a a a go route, but he made the right adjustment and came back at the right time because the ball was already in the air. And somebody asked Mike afterwards, and he said, "Well, we throw it a hundred times every day in practice."
2: Well, unbelievable, Coach. I tell you what, we can't thank you enough for for joining us today. Uh, we could go a lot longer. You've done so many great things, but we just can't thank you enough for giving us the time today. It, it really means the yeah. world, and we hope now you're you, staying safe and health, healthy down there.
1: Well, thank you, and you too. But you got one of my all-time favorite players right there in Kansas City and and Bill Moss.
2: Yeah. Yes. He's at Pitt. From Pitt. <coughs> yeah, that's right.
1: He's I still recru- here. <laughs> I recruited Bill, and he yeah. was a tight end in high school, weighed 215 wow. pounds. <laughs> and Joe, Joe Moore, which was my assistant, uh, assistant coach, we walked out of the house <clears throat> and Joe said, he'll be a 300 pounder. And I said, Joe, you're crazy. And sure enough, you know, Bill hit that 300 mark pretty quick. But he was, <laughs> Chris Doman and Bill Moss uh, uh, were backup players. I mean, that tells you the talent that we had at Pittsburgh at that time.
2: Wow. Yeah, and Bill's been – we've had him on the show uh, before as well a couple of times. He's uh, such a great guy, great asset, and always speaks so highly of his time at Pitt, Coach. So, well, we can't thank you enough. Please stay safe and stay healthy. Everything, uh, you know – Positive going forward, and let's get through this. Let's just get back to the normalcy of football. Hopefully, it happens here by late August. Let's uh, let's get back to normal here if we can.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, and call me anytime.
2: Oh, sure, will. Coach. Me, thank call you. Call me,
1: and we'll have a whole segment on the NCAA. I, I would love
2: to do that because uh, you know we're <laughs> I, you know you look at uh, kind of how your time ended at A and and it's like I, I feel like you were unfairly. Uh, your time there ended unfairly because of uh, of that. You were never, you were never proven to have done any wrongdoing at all, and you wind up having to resign over it. At least that's what it looked like to me. So, well,
1: uh, <laughs> your your audience would enjoy our session.
2: Yeah, anytime. I, the the uh, my Our audience is definitely not a fan of the NCAA, as I don't think that anyone left uh, in sports or in media or in coaching is. So,
1: <laughs> well, the worst the worst thing right now. And I object, and I don't mind objecting. Right now, they're using the Afro- African American athlete with Black Lives Matters to enhance their PR. When they came out and said that there'll no championships in the state of Mississippi, all they're doing or is doing are at this time is using the athlete in trying to get PR. Where were they five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if they felt that way? So the NCAA has been using the college athlete for years in making money, and they've abused him. And, uh, again, we need a a whole session because – I'm not a fan of the NCAA.
2: Thank you so much, Coach. We'll catch up again soon. We got your number. We'll be in touch.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you so That's much.
2: A pleasure
0: and an honor. Thank you, Coach.
2: Man, Jackie Sherrill bringing it. No filter needed. I'll tell you what. That was a lot of fun too because uh, he is adamant against the NCAA. Uh, I think we've all seen so much hypocrisy and so much wrongdoing from that organization that it's hard to take them seriously. But that said, right now we're just trying to get a football season in place uh, for college football. I think. College football is up against it a lot more even than the the NFL is because, um, you know, I mean, in the NFL, these players get paid. It's their jobs. And and the the college football landscape, obviously, these are not state employees. These players obviously have an opt-out option here, um, at least as of right now because we we have not officially suspended or canceled a season or anything like that. But, man, the NFL is putting in protocols as we speak. We've heard no – um, fan can enter a game without a mask on that 's if there 's going to be fans at all. So right now it looks to me like a lot of damage control, a lot of just preemptive ideas on the part of both the NCAA um, and the NFL trying to get this thing to happen. Noah, just please talk me off the ledge like just are we is this going to happen? Are we going to play some football here in about a you know, a little over a month?
0: I can uh, maybe talk you off a little bit. I think the NFL will play. Uh, They're going to move forward. They're going to try to play a season and complete a season. There's so much money on the line. These guys can go to their homes and quarantine in their homes, but I think college football is in the water. Uh, They're talking about just conference games. Maybe spring football is a thing that can happen. Uh, that's complicated as well with right after that, a draft. Is there going to be a combine? What's going to happen? But I think uh, if college football is going to happen, it's going to be spring football uh, because you've talked, you're talking about so many more teams and universities and programs, all the travel, all the kids, and they go back to dorms and universities and campuses where they're spreading it around. They can't just go to a single house like an NFL player can go back and quarantine and, and, uh, or go to just one little facility that the NFL has, uh, these kids are much more spread out across campus. So, much more difficult for the NCAA, but I think the NFL will at least attempt to start and complete a season.
2: I think there's something to the fact that, you know, we cover the SEC here, we cover the Missouri Tigers. I'm sensing a bit of a cavalier attitude from the Southeastern Conference, Noah, because there's been no talk the SEC hasn't canceled any non conference games. Oh, no, 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 no. The SEC wants and needs this to happen whether it be without fans or or what have you the university of texas from the big 12 recently says that they want 50 percent capacity i don't know that they're going to get that i don't know that they're going to get anything but there's at least a shred of positivity at least in the wording from uh, sec commissioner uh sankey uh wait greg sankey yeah from sec commissioner greg sankey I think that it's, uh, I mean, could it come down to just uh, certain states? I mean, California, they might as well secede from the union. They're not going to be a part of anything that happens in this country for a long time. That doesn't mean that uh, down in Auburn, Alabama, that they're not going to go ahead and play football.
0: Yeah, I mean, Pac-12, they're not relevant uh, in the grand scheme of things, In the end uh, result of college football anyway, so it doesn't matter what they do, the West Coast and California. They can cancel football. That's fine. No one's really going to notice. Uh, but the SEC, everyone will notice. And uh, I think if they just do move uh, to a conference schedule that uh, – the SEC might be able to have some sort of football. Maybe the ACC can take part in that as well. Um, the Big Ten just conference football. And so maybe there can be some semblance here. And uh, I know some of the smaller uh, conferences out there are talking about, so we're just going to do spring football. But maybe, just maybe there's an outside chance that we can get fall college football for a few conferences out here and the ones that matter, which is what uh, is really important to the Big 12 in there as well.
2: Well, we want to thank you guys for supporting everything we do. Again, our website, gasnsports.com. You can download this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. We always encourage you to leave a star rating. And um, it just helps us to continue doing what we do and what you guys like in these interviews. We have some huge ones coming up, Noah. I mean, we are stockpiled for interviews. We could, I mean, you talk about like hoarding up. In your home, if you have to, you've got. An, I've got enough ramen noodles to last the next six winters. I've, we've also got enough interviews for this podcast to last a lifetime. And we're going to keep rolling them out and doing what we do best here on the Elite Sports Podcast. Again, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. We want to thank our sponsors again this week. Raycon, guys, Vermeil Wines. You're holed up at home. You need vermeil Wine. Go to vermeilwines.com And of course, our good friends at Noble Apparel guys nobleapparelkc.com that's the website you need a mask if you're an nfl fan going to a game you're going to need a mask go to nobleapparelkc.com and pick one up hopefully a chiefs one if not maybe i suggest captain america or frozen i'm good with either um thank you guys so much again for joining us here on the elite we will be back next week with the show bigger and badder than ever